I invite you to take a Bible, if you will, and turn almost to the end of the Bible to First uh, John chapter 3. Uh, the epistles of John come right at the end. You go to the book of Revelation and just back up a little bit and you come to First John. We have uh, decided to, to, to focus on First John for the summer. Uh, you've had some lessons in Sunday school classes and also uh, most of the sermons this, this summer have been working our way through First John. Today we're in chapter 3 beginning in verse 11 through verse 18. Uh, before I read God's Word, I don't know how many of you, I uh, hope, hope you all have some kind of regular reading plan from the Bible. If you, I don't know how many of you use Table Talk magazine. It's a monthly uh, publication by Ligonier Ministries. And uh, there's a different theme each month. This month is called The Bonds of Brotherhood. And there's a daily Bible reading and comment uh, that only takes a few minutes to, to read. And then there's other uh, resources and some articles. This month of July uh, focuses on what we're going to be talking about today. And I found that out after I prepared the sermon. But I thought I would call that to your attention in case if you don't read Table Talk, I commend it to you. Uh, and I know a number of you do. First uh, John chapter 3, beginning in verse 11. This is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. This is how we know that what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. This, then, is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Let's pray together. Our Father, we, we need your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to be able to behold wonderful things from your law. Uh, we have lots of food. We've probably eaten uh, much this week, Lord, and yet you tell us we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So now may you feed our hungry souls. May you give us spiritual nourishment. We are not here by accident. We know that in your providence you've brought us here and now. And so we ask that you'd work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. As a new believer in high school, I struggled with the whole topic of the what's called the assurance of salvation. Now, if that's a new term to you, what I mean by that is I had come to believe not only that Jesus was the Son of God, that the Bible was true, that I had a problem of sin like we all had, that Jesus was my substitute, that he died on the cross for me, and only through him and not by my own efforts could I be forgiven. I believe that, that God promised eternal life because of that. And yet, even though I believed all those things and had no doubts about those, I doubted whether I was really a Christian, whether I was really converted, whether I was changed. And I wrestled with the subject of assurance of salvation for years, 
for years. And I did a probably an abnormal amount of study on it then and since then, really for my own per personal application. I had a youth director at my church that played a vital role in my spiritual awakening and growth. His name was John, not to be confused with the one who wrote the epistles of John. And he would meet with me a time or two each week. We would pray together. He would teach me about the Bible in addition to going to church services. And I called him one day and I said, John, I'm very alarmed. I said, each day as I've been trying to grow in Christ, I sense God's presence. I feel like I'm a Christian. I sense that he is near me. And now today the, the, meaning, the feelings have just disappeared. They are gone. And I'm just overcome with doubts as to whether I'm a Christian at all. I was in a panic mode, and he calmly said, well, here's what I suggest. Why don't you tonight sit down and read 1 John? Read the short little epistle, the five chapters of 1 John, which I did. Now, why would he suggest that? Let me ask you if you'll take your Bible and turn one page over to chapter 5, verse 13, because here at the end of the letter, the author, John, tells us the purpose in writing these things, which is the previous four and a half chapters. He said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that was me, I believed, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's saying, John was saying, what I've written to you, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, I've written for the purpose that those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God may know that you have eternal life. And so really the theme the main application of this little epistle of 1 John is that you may know whether you have eternal life or not. And he gives several little tests uh, and in about if, if we've come to know him. That, that word knows used over 40 times in, in the epistle. If we know him, then we will have love for his word. We will have obedience to his law. And we, as we will see today, will have love for other believers. And so he, he's showing these marks. As I read through that epistle, as my youth director wisely advised me to do, I could see, hey, that's happened in your life, Chip. That's changed in your life. You didn't bring that about. You didn't desire that. God's doing this. And so it had the right effect on me. So as we look at this this morning, even though we're just looking at a brief part of it, uh, you need to. It's designed so that as you and I read it, hear it, we examine our hearts to see, is this a snapshot of my heart? Is this a picture of my life? And so I hope you'll keep that in mind as we look briefly at verses 11 and following. I read it to you a moment ago. It's, it, it's a contrasting passage that talks about love and it talks about murder. It talks about hatred and it talks about sacrificial service to one another. So the theme is in verse, or the, the, the topic of the, the paragraphs is in verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Jesus had said this in John chapter 13. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So yes, we know we should love the Lord Jesus, and as a result of that, as a consequence of that, as an outgrowth of that, we should love others who love him. But in our day and time, we've so overused and misused the word love that it needs explanation. If you've just been educated by popular culture in America today, 
then you probably equate the statement, I love you, with I want to go to bed with you. Because it seems on the television and movies that that statement is followed by sex. That's just it, love and sex. Well, that's not what's being talked about here in this passage. Then we talk about we love certain activities, like, oh, I love swimming or skiing or, or jogging, or I love objects, I love my house, or I love my car, or I love this particular food, I love donuts, that's understandable, or I love hot dogs, and we say I love my dog or my cat or my hamster, or I love nature, I like trees, I love grass or flowers, and we love other people, my mother, my father, or your daughter or your wife or so forth. And all this can be confusing. And it's even more confusing today when people will use a statement, I did it because I love him or I love her for all sorts of bizarre actions. Now here's a high-profile person in politics or business or in the church that commits adultery. And he's interviewed and he says, well, I was just in love. And the Bible calls it sin. Or here's the wife of an alcoholic who picks up the pieces of her husband's latest episode and she says she's loving her husband and the psychologist says, no, you're codependent. Or the parent who indulges all their child's wishes and calls it love and the family therapist says, no, that's irresponsible parenting. So what is loving behavior? I mean, when we throw this term around so much, what does the Bible mean when it says love one another? Although the book is 10 to 15 years old now, I believe, Gary Chapman's The Five Languages of Love, I think, is a very insightful book. And he, he's, he builds the book around five... He, let me back up. He says each person has their own love language. In other words, what things that you say or do to another person, they interpret as loving. They see that as loving. And we speak certain languages or we do certain things that we think we're communicating love. And sometimes you have one person, their love language is action, and another person's love language is deeds of service or words, and they constantly feel unloved by one another. Here's what he says of the five love languages. First is quality time. For some people, that's primarily how they express and receive love, by quality time. Now, you saw one of our grown children a few moments ago, but we had five children... Uh, youngest is 14 now, but with daughters, this, this time, this quality time thing is really key. I, I heard a, a pastor I know tell that he's got a five-year-old daughter who recently came. He was just waking up in the morning. His daughter came into the bedroom, climbed in bed with him, and said, Daddy, I, ne I need some daddy time. And she snuggled up with him, and he said, I enjoyed it too. And five minutes later, she said, okay, I've had enough. And then she, she went about her way. I remember talking while being preoccupied, which is typical of me, to one of my daughters, and I was talking to her. She was here, and I was saying this, and she reached her hand up and grabbed my face while I was talking and turned it so that I had to make eye contact with her. You know, that's, that's one way of expressing love. When people receive that. It's the quality time. He mentions also receiving gifts. Some of you speak this language. You see a gift, not so much how much, it, uh, not so much how much it's worth or anything like that, but you hold it in your hand and say, oh, look, she was thinking of me when she got this, or he was thinking about me when he, when he purchased this for me. And so the, the gift itself is symbolic of thought, and you receive that as this person really loves me. Or acts of service, serving others. There's some of you that you may not express love to other people verbally, 
you may choose not to or just don't feel that you're very adept at that, but you can serve, and you're behind the scenes, and you do deeds to help, or you clean, or you cook, or you, you do something to help another person. You're expressing your love via that way. Then there's physical touch. I grew up in a family where there wasn't much physical touch, and Barb's had to educate me since we've been married on all of that. But I, you know, my dad, for my dad to express great warmth to me, he would have patted me on the shoulder while standing away from me. And so my, my father died late in life. My mother remarried a few years later and enjoyed three blissful years before cancer claimed her second husband. His name was Don, and I think he was probably the nicest person I ever met. Well, I heard a lot about Don before I met him, heard a lot about him through her, and when I first met him, here I am, I go to shake his hand. He swatted my hand out of the way and just gave me a big shake, and he goes, shaking my hand. I mean, he was a hugger. He was a, a toucher, just a great guy. It's a language of touch. Some have the language of words of affirmation. You need to hear somebody tell you, that was a good job. I'm encouraged by that. Or do you realize how God used that in my life, what you did? Or These are what Gary Chapman, anyway, and I think he's got some insight, summarizes his languages of love. But if you really want to know love, you can't look at our culture. You have to look at Jesus. So he's always held up as the model of love, even as he is in this passage. All right, before we look at love, we're going to look at the contrast, and that is hatred as demonstrated in the life of Cain. Okay, that's the next verse. Do not, verse 12, do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. Now, if you've not been to Sunday school, you have to go way back to the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. And rather than turning and taking the time to read the first 12 verses of Genesis 4 that tell us about Cain and Abel, let me just summarize it. Adam and Eve, our ancient four parents, were created by God. They, they, they broke God's law. They, they broke his one uh, prohibition that he'd given. They, were, they suffered the consequences, which is spiritual death, and they were exiled from the Garden of Eden. Now, all that happens up in chapter, through chapter 3. In chapter 4, uh, Cain is born, their first child, their son, Cain, is born. Later, he has a younger brother, Abel. He is born. They went on to have more children later, but the, so far in chapter 4, the focus is on those two. Abel is a herdsman. Cain is a tiller of the ground. They both are from the same family, same environment. Cain's a little bit older, and they both offer sacrifices to God. They both go through the actions of worship. Now, we don't know how exactly how God communicated what I'm getting ready to tell you to them, but for some reason, he communicated that he accepted, God accepted Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept Cain's sacrifice. So Cain began to envy his brother. God warned him. He said, sin is crouching at the door. In other words, you're being tempted, Cain. Don't give in to it. Cain could have repented. He could have confessed his sin to God, that he was envious. He could have sought to be right with God, but rather than do that, he murders his brother. And the language, I must tell you, is very graphic in the Hebrew. He slit his brother's throat. It says there he butchered him. God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? And Cain lies. I don't know. And then you have more and more in the story when God 
confronts him and judges him for this. Now, why does this why is this put here in this passage about loving one another? Because it says, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. What do you mean he belonged to the evil one? I mean, he was born to Adam and Eve, just like his younger brother Abel was. Well, every person has a spiritual lineage. And Cain's spiritual father was Satan or the devil. What that means is that his thoughts and his attitudes and his actions originated with the devil. That's what it means when he says you're of, the fa- of your father, the devil. We see the same thing in the New Testament with the ministry of Jesus. In John chapter 8, he's in an argument with the religious leaders. And he says to them, he was speaking of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, for there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he lies. He is a liar and the father of lies. And then he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, says to these religious leaders. What he means is they are thinking thoughts, they are forming actions, and they are murderous in their hearts, and he's saying this originates with the devil. If they could have gotten their hands on him at that moment, on Jesus, they would have murdered him on the spot. Now, that was centuries later. Now, what is focused on here is not just the action, but primarily on the motive, because like any murder, motive plays a key relative. I had an aunt and uncle, many of you know, that were murdered some years ago, brutally, brutally, by a young man that they knew. He had mowed their grass. He was from a good family, apparently a Christian family, had no crime record. And he later said, after he came to their house, and he, he... he, he, he was brutal in the way he killed him. My uncle was dead when he was found a few days later. My aunt died in the hospital a few days after that. But, but he, he beat their heads in with a, a metal pipe. And he, when he was caught at the Galleria Mall in Birmingham a few days later driving their car, he said, I was tired of, I was tired of walking while everybody else was riding. So I determined that I would go to Ernest and Lucille's house and steal their car. That was the motive. That was it, to steal the car. And so this focuses on the motive. It says his motive was envy. Abel had not done anything to Cain. He had not stolen anything from him. He had not cheated anything away from Cain. He had not insulted him in public. He had, there's no indication that Abel had done anything to wrong his brother. But Cain's whole motive was envy. He saw that Abel was, Abel's sacrifice was accepted to God and his was not. Now, Linsky, the commentator, said, The devil's children hate God's children just because the righteous works of these condemn their own works. And what John is saying is this very hatred that you see even starting way back there in Genesis 4, it continues today. He says, do not be surprised, in verse 13, my brothers, if the world hates you. I remember what it was like before I was a Christian. I had a Christian friend named Bob, Bobby back then, now he goes by Bob. And I'd see him, he he made me feel uncomfortable. Not that he tried to, it's just when I saw him, I also saw myself. And I wasn't him. And and so I I would often avoid him if I saw him coming at school. I didn't want to be around him. Why? It made me feel guilty because I knew that this was a, even then, I knew he was a godly man, a godly young man, and I wasn't. And so what John is saying is this originated in the garden. It's demonic. 
It's diabolical. It starts as hatred, then it works itself out as murder. Don't be surprised if the world hates you. Now, I believe that we should make, we should be able to communicate the faith about Christ and biblical truth in a way that people can understand. I think we should not erect obstacles for, for worship or evangelism or anything else. But there is only so far you can go. And if we think we can make the, the gospel palatable to the United States of America in secular thinking today by making it look cool or in any other way, we are fooling ourselves. Because in its very nature, the world hates it, just like we did before we were believers. Because like Cain, it makes us feel bad. And it points out our unrighteousness. I know of a church in another city where the pastor told the staff, we are not going to mention the blood of Christ here. That's, that, yeah, I know what you're trying to do, but you're not going to achieve it. You're trying to make it palatable for the secular world because that sounds weird to an unbeliever. But you, you can't make it palatable to, to a secular world without gutting it of its truth, of the essence of what Christ did. Now, so he talks about hatred, that the intent is the same, but then he changes and says, as a new believer, as a believer, we should love one another. And so in verse 14, he says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Okay, I mentioned to you before, the purpose is that those of us who believe in the same of God, Son of God may know, may have the assurance. And so he says, this is how we may know. What empowers us, what motivates us, when we move from spiritual death to spiritual life through faith in Christ, we become new creatures, and he begins to bring these changes in our lives. And John, the author of this, was a great example. We first meet up with him and his brother named James when Jesus calls them to be some of his disciples. Jesus nicknames them the sons of thunder, probably because either they were just loud talking or given to temper or whatever it was, but they are crusty guys when they begin following Jesus. They even send their mama. They send their mama to Jesus to ask if they can sit on his right hand and left hand when he sits. You know, I don't know what that tells you about them. But then they, they also uh, they want to call down fire to destroy a village that was not receptive to Christ. Jesus rebukes them. But what do we see? We see this transformation in John's life to where when Jesus is dying on the cross, he entrusts the care of his mother Mary to John and John to her. And now when John writes this, he's elderly. He's grandpa. He's Grandpa Pastor John. And so we find he's writing to younger believers, and he says, he uses these words, little children, my dear loved ones. You know, he's, he's, he's pastoring them. He loves them. And so he had been transformed. He had experienced this, to be transformed in a person into a person who could love another person. I, I mentioned to you about my father dying in his 70s, um, back in the early 1990s. And my, I prayed for my father to become a believer. My mom and I prayed for him to become a Christian for almost every day for 20 years. 20 years. I've never prayed about anything as long and as fervently as I prayed for him. Not every day, but probably, probably five or six days a week. I prayed that my dad would come to faith in Christ, which he did about three years before he died. And... Uh, my mother called me on the phone one day and said, Chip, i got something to tell you. The pastor of the church developed a relationship with your dad, and he came by today, and he told, he told Wayne, my dad's name was Wayne, he said, Wayne, I'm coming to talk to you about your soul. 
And so he came by, and they went through the evangelism explosion, the presentation of the gospel. He said, Chip, your, your dad prayed to receive Christ. Now, after 20 years of fervent prayer, you know what the first words out of my mouth were. I don't believe it. Well, about four or five days later, we drove over to Alabama, and I wanted to see him. And I wanted to see what had happened. But I didn't want to put any words in his mouth, so I said, I'm not bringing it up. I'm not going to ask him anything, except, how you doing? Well, we got into the house, and within 10 minutes of getting there, my father says, Chip, I want to tell you something. Um, I, I've become a Christian. And that day, and every time I saw him for the, for the remaining three years or so before he died, that's all he wanted to talk about. That is all he wanted to talk about. It had always been sports and politics before. Now it was God and truth and in and, and Scripture. Well, growing up, my father was a great dad, but he was not a man I ever heard apologize. Never. Not once. I never heard I'm sorry. I never heard I was wrong. Now, I said something at the first service that I probably regret, and I don't mean it to be funny. It may have been because he was a lawyer. And that was his training. I'm not trying to insult all y'all there lawyers. I don't know. But I just know that may have been why. I never heard him apologize. Now, am I in trouble? There are all, all the lawyers are on this side. I'll, I'll preach to this side. I told you he'd come to faith in Christ. A few months later, I'm, I'm with him in his law office. Uh, he was sitting there behind his desk. I was going up to visit with him. And another uh, attorney from down the hall... Uh, came in and they talked for a while. They kind of joked with each other and then he left. And my dad said, do you know that guy? I said, yeah, I, I met him years ago. I don't really know him. I remember his name. He said, you know that the other day was the first time I spoke to him in like seven years. And I said, I said, well, what happened? He said, well, and he talked about some way that this guy had wronged him seven years ago. And he said, uh, what happened was the other day I went back to his office and I asked him to forgive me for the way I treated him. I said, Daddy, who told you to do that? And he said, nobody told me to do that. That's just what you're supposed to do, isn't it? Well, I knew the Holy Spirit had told him to do that. What I'm trying to, to say is that when God transforms us and what John is saying, that one of the outgrowths of that is loving other people. Obviously, asking for forgiveness for something is a form of love or an expression of love. And so that, that is the change. Please, I hope you're not here saying, oh boy, I need to leave here and just try to love people more, you know, and make myself acceptable to God. No, we're talking about as a result of knowing the love of Christ, we are empowered then with the desire and ability to love other people. Now, he goes on, and I let me kind of wrap this up. In verses 16 and following, he gives the example of Christ. This is how we know what love is. And he gives a supreme example of Jesus dying. Jesus laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Yes, if we're called to make the supreme sacrifice by God's grace, hopefully we would do that. But most of us won't be called to do that. Most of us will not be in a position to die for another person. But in verse 17, he brings it right back down to probably where we can all relate. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And then he says, Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So as we, as we think about this, I, I, I'm to love as a new creature in Christ. I love other believers. I love all people in a general way, but he's talking especially here toward other believers, my Christian brothers and sisters. 
And he's saying, don't just do it with words, not just saying I love you, not just thinking I love you, but with actions. And then he gets real specific. By the way, how about possessions? Here's the situation. Here's someone with a legitimate need. And here's a person that has an excess of some sort. They at least have more in some area than this person. And that need is made known to that person. And because they love Christ, they say, I want to help that brother. I want to help that sister. Now, there are several things that have to happen. One, the legitimate need. Two, the communication of that need to others. And three, the person in a capacity and ability to help with that. Now, I just want to tell you something as a pastor who's been here a long time, 20-plus years. I have seen this worked out in this church hundreds of times. And it is a privilege to serve here because most of you have no idea how much goes on behind the scenes. But as the pastor, uh, I have been the deliverer sometimes when someone has called me or come to my house and said, I understand that so-and-so has a, a very pressing need right now. Uh, and I want to help, but I don't want them to know where it came from. Can you make sure this gets to them? Uh, or sometimes I've been in positions where the very person who gave in one situation needed help because they had had a real downturn. And then things had improved in their business, and then they were back in a position to help others. So that's, that's you can't get that if you're a church hopper. I'm not trying to, boy, the lawyers and the church hoppers are going to be upset today, but if you're a church hopper, if you go one place for a month and then say, well, what's the latest and greatest, and I'm going over there for a month, and I'm, you will not experience community. You've got to be in a church community, congregation, I think for years to begin to understand what this is talking about, to where people are known, others are known, there's confidences, there's trust, and a person can say, I can help that person. It's, sometimes it's been cars, it's been medical bills, it's been support for a ministry the person was trying to, that they were dependent on, uh, it's been a, a work done on a house. It's, done, it's been to help with something the children needed. It's been clothes. And, and some of you are very wise in your giving. I think that comes with the gift of giving. Often those people have an ability to say, that's a real need. That's a legitimate need. And sometimes they'll know, that's a need, but it's not a need I need to meet. But this is a legitimate need. I want to do that. I didn't mean to talk about my dad all day, but when I was a little boy, the few times we'd go to church is when I was a child in Montgomery, Alabama, before we moved to Gadsden, Alabama. We would go to church, and what I remember, but besides the formality and the one time during the week I had to wear a coat and tie and so forth, I'd sit next to my dad, and he'd give me two things. He'd give me a cert. <laughs> That's the only time I ever had certs, I think. And as the offering plate was coming, he'd, he'd hand me a, a coin, usually a dime or a quarter. And he'd come by and I'd drop that in the offering plate. And later, I got to thinking, that wasn't a good way to teach somebody how to give. And, and, I mean, I didn't sacrifice for that. I didn't work for it. But in retrospect, I think it was perfect. Here's what I mean. My father gives to me, and I give to others. <laughs> so it's a great picture of giving. So when we, get a, when we get some kind of windfall, when we have a surplus, I hope you at least pray and say, Lord, before I assume that this is just for me to consume or use, is there some need that you want to meet that you've supplied this to me at this time or to us as a family that we can help meet that need? That's Christian love. And that's how he applies this right here. Well, I'm out of time. 
John Stott, in his commentary that some of you Sunday school leaders are using, he summarizes this passage with these three sentences. He says, hatred characterizes the world, and their prototype is Cain. Love characterizes the church. Our prototype is Christ. It originates in God, love issues in self-sacrifice, and love is evidence of eternal life. Do you know him today? If you know him, you will see to some degree some progress that has worked in your life to where you love other people in a way that you did not before you knew him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, and it's through him we are made right with you. We thank you for his perfect love, the coming and living a perfect life. He, he obeyed you in every respect, and he died as our substitute. May our trust be in him. May you give us love for one another, empowered by your spirit. May you give us assurance that we belong to you if indeed we have trusted Christ. Make that clear to us and bring us to Christ if we've not. In Jesus' name, amen.